over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, today on the broadcast, we're delighted to have Dr. Wendy Witter with us. Wendy has a PhD in Near Eastern Studies from the University of the Free State. She earned her MA in Hebrew and Semitic Studies from the University of Madison, Wisconsin. She went further to get an MDiv with an emphasis in educational ministries from Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. She has authored a number of books, two in particular towards single adults. She's co-authored a book for Christian school teachers. And for our purposes, she's authored a commentary on the book of Daniel entitled The Story of God Commentary, published by Zondervan. And she's working on a second, Hearing the Message of the Scripture. Additionally, her master's thesis and doctoral studies have been published by Logos in the Logos Bible software. And one of the things you're finding out listening to our broadcast, we are pulling on a number of our friends at Logos uh, who have done good homework in finding out the subject matter experts on different topics. So with all that to add, let me add one more thing. She's an adjunct professor at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary and Bethel Seminary. So with that long introduction, good morning, Dr. Witter. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> So let's just jump right in. You chose at some point in your academic research career, Daniel. Why Daniel? Why'd you jump in? Well, it actually chose me. Um, Daniel was pretty near the bottom of the list of Old Testament books that I wanted to study. Um, I grew up with the Thief in the Night series of movies, the predecessor to the Left Behind books. Yeah. And uh, just thought the book of Daniel was probably not something I wanted to spend a lot of time in. <laughs> I'll just leave that for another conversation, but I didn't want to do it. And I was at a point in my graduate studies in Madison where I really needed to beef up my resume with some teaching experience, and I also needed some income. And so I contacted um, an acquaint well, a friend of mine at Grand, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary where I had done my Master of Divinity, and he had left the door open for me to teach short-term courses if I needed to do that and wanted to do that. So I contacted him at this point in my life and I said, say, do you happen to have any courses you need taught during the two-week January term or during spring? And he wrote back, he said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. How would you like to teach Daniel? <laughs> and this was via email, so he right. couldn't see my face. Right. I said, I wrote back, I'd love to. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. That's funny. So I landed there, and I sort of got stuck there. I don't want to make any presumptions, but I bet in short order you fell in love. Yes, I did. Um, I got to teach it several times at the seminary there, and I've been with it for the last 10 years, and I love the book. Well, let's dive in. Uh, first of all, give me your what I call the 25-word overview synopsis of the book of Daniel. Um, the book of Daniel portrays the eternal kingdom of God and its superiority over all other kingdoms. And it also shows people of God how to live under human kings. That's pretty good. Now, all, all of us like to teach 
the first few chapters of Daniel. Yes, those are easy. Yeah, those and, are fun. and then we get into um, our theology uh, lens affects the way we look at the latter part of the book. But before we go there, and I do want to go there, um, let, let me walk through some of these things, um, some of the phrases that jump out to me. And, and if there's ones you want to chat about, jump in and, and tell me what's really important. But the idea of wisdom and favor and Daniel being this standout, what's your take on that? Well, Daniel and his friends are definitely portrayed as sages or wise people in the ancient Near East. There's similar language to what we find um, even in the book of Proverbs to a person who is wise. And so the book definitely portrays them in that way. When we get to the the renaming of these characters a little later on uh, and with your ancient Near Eastern lens, what do you make of that? Well, that was just part of the enculturation process that they were going through. So when Nebuchadnezzar had them brought from Jerusalem, they were enrolled, if you will, in a three-year education that really was designed to turn them from being exemplary Judean citizens to being top-of-the-line Babylonian captives, really, and they were to be in service to the king. So everything about them uh, was changed to show that they were owned by somebody else. And so their names reflected that. So, Dr. Witter, we've got these trophies. They're being indoctrinated. They're perhaps a showcase. But now they're integral in the administration, one would say, right? Yes, they've been trained to be in the king's service. So they are owned by the king. And part of the, the education process was to, in a sense, brainwash them or change their thinking into Babylonian ways of thinking. So they would have learned the language, but it also says they would have learned the literature. So they would have learned the whole set of classical materials that was part of Babylonian mythology and everything that contributed to their belief system. So they would have had to learn all of that. We get into chapter two, and of course, uh, most readers like the dream narratives. And um, the king says, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And of course, the Chaldeans, uh, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we'll declare the interpretation. And you got to love it. He says, the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb. This is like the flogging will continue until morale improves, right? I mean, (laughs) striking. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts, rewards, etc. And so now we're entered in. We've got the, the, the story arc, if you will. We've got this problem and Daniel is going to be inserted in the storyline. Yeah, although he's really not the centerpiece of the storyline, which is kind of interesting. I mean, the, he is a main character in the book, but right. obviously God is the main, main character. And I would even argue that Nebuchadnezzar is uh, a more pronounced character than Daniel. When you look at literature and narrative, authors have a way of telling you or showing you more accurately about their characters. And there's you know, the language of a flat character where you see no emotion. They just tell you what the character did. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is the only character that we hear his emotions and we get to see what he's thinking and feeling. And I think a lot of Daniel 2, 3, and 4 are about portraying this quintessential Gentile king and how the God of Israel intersected with him. Um, And he was the most powerful king of his day. And the God of Israel, who had apparently been defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, shows up and interacts with this king. And we see Nebuchadnezzar develop over three chapters. 
until we get to chapter four, which of course is an amazing chapter in itself. So I think Nebuchadnezzar is almost a more important character in the first part of Daniel and Daniel himself. Well, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I love chapter two when Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, you know, bows before Daniel, offers him presents, and, and then here's the declaration, surely your God is a God of gods mm-hmm. and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And I remember back in seminary, you know, debating, you know, was Nebuchadnezzar what we call a believer? What's your take? I don't know that the book tells us definitively. I think the book is intending to show us how first he really admits this God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's a polytheist. He's got many gods. And so in chapter two, what he recognizes about Daniel's God is that this is a God who has superior wisdom than he has, superior knowledge to all of Nebuchadnezzar's experts. So in his declaration, he's admitting that God into his pantheon, if you will. And in chapter three, I think he acknowledges that God to be the God of superior power to all other gods. And then by the time you get to chapter four, he does make these amazing declarations about the God of Israel. So we're just adding him on the mantle, so to speak. He certainly yeah, has I think a, so. a monotheistic. That's my okay, I like that. That's a good analysis. Let's go back to the, and I love your motif about the kingdom and God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. And if Babylon, of course, was a superpower of that time, is that fair? Yes, it was the power of the day in the ancient Near East. Let's talk about this golden image. Mm-hmm. Give us uh, Dr. Witter's exposition of this image. <laughs> Well, uh, it's a picture of, I think, world history. Um, and I think there's there's obviously a lot of symbolism that your podcast doesn't have time for. The use of the number four is a number of totality. So in some respects, I think each part of the statue is probably referencing a specific kingdom or even a specific king. But I think beyond that, it's demonstrating the totality of human history and how it will ultimately be destroyed by the superior king and kingdom, which is um, illustrated by the stone. It's been fun over the years uh, reading multiple commentaries and studying how many, you know, literal, figurative, uh, what they do with symbolism. And we've all seen caricatures of this if you do a Google search of oh, images. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's quite kind of like your, your journey of uh, how you got to Daniel, perhaps. There's a lot of interesting information out there. Let's leave it that way. <laughs> Yes, yes. You could spend a lot of time studying it if you want to. Oh, it's a a rabbit hole, is it not? Um, (laughs) All right, you brought up Chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar's, let's just call it not profession, but maybe declaration. Is that a Mm -hmm. fair? Yeah. Give us your your insights on this. Well, I think one of the most interesting things about Chapter 4 is that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's allowed to speak. Um, So this is the choice by the narrator, the final narrator of the book of Daniel, who put all the pieces, all the stories of Daniel and all of his journal dream reports together. They chose to let Nebuchadnezzar make this statement in his own words, where a biblical narrator often summarizes what people say. They summarize events. They summarize declarations. They put it in their own words. But they put this on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. So here you have the most powerful king of the ancient Near East, the one who took Yahweh and his people captive in chapter one, who defeated him, apparently, as it would have looked to the people watching. That God and his defeated people is the one that Nebuchadnezzar, the paradigm for a Gentile king, acknowledges in his own words. 
I think part of the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar speaking it in first person is that it makes a really powerful statement to God's people at that time that their God wasn't defeated. I mean, of course, the prophets would have told them that, and Daniel 1 has that encoded in there, that their God was sovereign. But here is this paradigm of a Gentile king acknowledging his dependency, um, his subservience to the God of Israel. And I just think it's a powerful paradigm for, um, you know, back out and see all of world history that someday every Gentile king will bow the knee and will confess that God is the eternal king and has the eternal kingdom. Um, so there's a lot I could say about that. I've written an article about it, about why it's in the first person and why the narrator chose to preserve it that way. I think it's a powerful thing in the book of Daniel. One of the things I often look for in the text is attribution to self versus attribution to God. And in chapter 430, he says, the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself mm -hmm. have built as a royal residence by the power of, by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? And then the mm -hmm. voice comes, and King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And if we go back to your thesis that he figured him, he looked at himself as a superpower, um, or certainly the sovereign, then he talks about you'll be driven away and the seven periods and so forth until you recognize that yeah. the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And then, of course, this comes true, and he's eating grass like the cows. Verse 34, at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and we see the differential. I built, I, my power, now, now he's on the ground, you know, humiliated. The hubris is gone. He's looking up. I have mm -hmm. raised my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And that, I won't read it all, but the following verses are pretty chilling, again, as you articulate when you see this from a Babylonian king. So let, let me ask you a question, and this is one that I often, in my own studies, I just wonder. When we look at captivities, when we look at the time Israel was not in their land and these things are transpiring, most of the audience that was around in Daniel's time, they're going to be dead long before this information is back in Israel, so to speak, or when the temple complex is usable again. And mm -hmm. I understand enough about oral tradition and whatnot, but you brought it up, what made me think about it, when you said the declaration to the Jew, when they hear a Babylonian king say this about their God— so if I'm making sense of my question, help me understand how the audience heard that, and obviously they're going to die off, and how they're going to transfer that to their children's children. So, you know, it's like they didn't see the plagues in the wilderness. They didn't see the exodus, and they're living in this vacuum for 40 years, and everyone over 20 dies. So the teens now are the ones that are going to appropriate the land. I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. I'm sure you've, you've noodled with that some. Well, I think it— it's hard for us in our culture with texting and email, and we just have ways to communicate with people around the world in a second. Um, it's hard for us to grasp what an oral culture, an oral culture would have been like and how valuable the telling of stories would have been. You know, when you get to Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the law a second time to those descendants who Correct. did not 
participate in the Exodus. And he says over and over, remember, remember, tell your children. And that was really critical to the survival of this people, that they remember and they pass on these stories and these things that they had seen and learned and heard and pass them on again. Everybody passes them on and it becomes part of their tradition, part of what they know, part of uh, the Babylonian counter or the counterpart, if you will, to the Babylonian enculturation. You know, they had their literature and their stories that they were educated in. Well, Judeans, Jews, would have had the same thing. They would have been educated and would have learned these things because their their culture depended on it. Well, and that's one of my uh, off-cuff remarks I make too often in the pulpit saying, we don't know history. We no, are we vacuous, and education isn't helping our kids, and much less Christian history. Anyway, that's for another podcast. Well, the Jews also didn't know their history. Well, right? that was I my mean, question. Was, yeah. yeah, it was passed on. It was passed on. It was passed on. But along the way, they stopped doing that, and that's that's part of being human, fallen human, right? We forget. Yeah. I want one of the most common commands in the Bible is remember, remember. remember. Yep. Yep, that and do not fear, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Belshazzar and the famous feast. Again, you're the expert on this. I'm the hack theologian. But <laughs> the vessels, to me, again, the trophies from the temple complex, we don't know the precise inventory of what these were, but the gold, the silver vessels, and they're going to fill them with wine. And to me, it's delicious irony that the king, his nobles, his wives, oh, and his concubines are going to drink from them. <laughs> And mm-hmm. talk about hubris, you know, yes. they've been taken from the house of God, which is in Drew, and now we're just, you know, they're solo cups to us, and right. they're giving praise to the God of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then we have this, you know, wonderful story that most children hopefully learn, the writing on the wall. Yes. I think chapter five is a counterpart to chapter four. The two go together. So in chapter four, we have this portrayal of the proud human king, Nebuchadnezzar, and how God humbled him. And then you see his response to God, the appropriate response to God's humbling. When you get to chapter five, you have Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is a proud human king who defies the God of Israel, really. Um, Nebuchadnezzar at least had the proper respect, if you will, for sacred vessels. So he, yes, he had plundered the Jerusalem temple and brought these vessels back to Jerusalem or to Babylon, but he didn't use them. They were sacred. They went into the treasure house of his God because that's where they should go. They were the victorious God's reward. Um, Here comes Belshazzar, and he's taking vessels that he had no business taking. Nobody in their right mind, really, in the ancient Near East would have taken a vessel that belonged to a God and used it for a common purpose. And so in some ways, Belshazzar is one-upping Nebuchadnezzar, if you Mm. will, trying to show that he's perhaps even more daring or more courageous or more powerful. Um, And as the chapter unfolds, you know, we learn what Belshazzar, who he is and what he's done. And the answer really is he's nobody and he's done nothing. He's not even really a biological son of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, He probably came to the throne as the descendant of a usurper. So here we have this, and his his father, the king, his his father really was the king, um, Nabonidus. And Belshazzar filled in when Nabonidus, Nabonidus was gone for 10 years. He was sort of the, he was a co-regent with him. 
So here we have the stand-in son of a usurper who has done nothing. I mean, history barely knows Belshazzar. It took us a while to even find him in the records. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar, everybody knows Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he really was a powerful king. Belshazzar is a nobody. He's a co-regent. And, you know, we don't have battles that he won. We don't know much about him. And so you have the contrast of kings in these two chapters. They're both proud and they're both humbled by God. Um, Nebuchadnezzar responds correctly. Belshazzar doesn't get a chance to respond, but Daniel makes it really clear in his speech to Belshazzar that he should have known better. He had the example of Nebuchadnezzar to follow. He should have known better than to do what he did. So it's a really interesting contrast, and it's at the heart of those Aramaic chapters, which I think are an important block in the book of Daniel. So I could talk about that if you want me to, the chiasm, the structure of those six chapters and how I think they really shape an understanding of the book. I needed to talk to you before I did the survey of this book. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, uh, and I love chiastic structures and I, that's a rabbit hole for me. So give us the high point that we can't go into all of them. Right. There's six chapters that are in Mm -hmm. Aramaic and different theories on why they're Aramaic, but that's beside the point. And they stand sort of an opposite parallel. So chapter two corresponds to chapter seven. They're both about four world kingdoms and then a fifth eternal kingdom. And then chapter three corresponds to chapter six. Chapter three is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Chapter six is Daniel in the lion's den. They're both stories of God's faithful people who are suffering on account of their faithfulness in exile. Chapter four and chapter five are, as I just said, the stories of proud human kings being humbled by God. And they are at the heart of these six chapters. So a chiasm, you know, this X, this inverted structure of things in literature, what most people think is that what's at the center of it is the main message or the takeaway. What's this whole chiastic structure trying to hammer home? And so at the center of this structure, this chapter two through chapter seven structure, are these two chapters about proud kings being humbled by God. Mm. So here in this entire book that showcases the relationship between divine, the divine king and human kings, at the heart of this structure, we have these two proud kings being humbled by God. One of them responds appropriately. One of them does not and is destroyed. On either side of those two chapters, we have God's people living under human kings Mm -hmm. who are essentially hostile to their belief system. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar in chapter three really is a flaming maniac. He's going to heat the furnace seven times hotter and et cetera. So he's definitely hostile. Chapter six with Darius He actually likes Daniel, right? He doesn't want this to happen to Daniel. He doesn't want to throw him in the lion's den. He tries hard not to. Right. And so I think we get this picture really of what Christians will encounter as they live under human kings. Sometimes we will live under hostile governments. Sometimes we won't. And yet we are called to be faithful in each of those circumstances. And we will suffer to different degrees. Um, We may or may not be delivered in this lifetime, but the examples of those Judeans suffering um, tells us how to live under human government. Chapters two and seven give this cosmic view that sort of 
holds the whole thing together. It's not just about divine king and one or two human kings. Mm -hmm. This is all of history. This is the cosmos that the God of Israel is sovereign over. It's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Let's let's talk about many, many tekeloop shars. I'm going to stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I know Hebrew and Greek, but I'm not going to say how to pronounce that one. So anyway, uh, this hand is writing on the wall. And fascinating image. We love to teach it in a, a Sunday school class to kids. Unpack it for us. Well, it's a judgment. Um, here's Belshazzar, who's just drunk out of the gold temple vessels, which tells us that they would have been vessels from the inner sanctuary, so the holy place. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have been gold. Correct. So he's just desecrated them, and in doing so, really sort of elevated himself above the God whose vessels they are. And then suddenly we have this judgment pronounced, and it's a hand writing on the wall. Belshazzar can't understand what he sees. He doesn't understand what it means, so he calls on his experts. They don't know, and there's a lot of debate as to why they don't know, um, or if they maybe perhaps did know and weren't willing to say what it might have said. <laughs> Daniel, when he interprets it, he actually does something interesting. When he reads it, he reads the words as nouns. So it's coinage, kinds of money. It'd be like saying nickel, dime, quarter, or something like that. But that has no meaning. So just reading it um, has no meaning. Then he interprets it, and he changes, or he reads the same set of letters as verbs. So you've studied Hebrew, you know kind of how that works. Um, I'll let you unpack that a little bit more for your audience in the future. But in Hebrew and Aramaic, you get consonants and right. you have to fill in the vowels. And so Daniel does that. But in his reading and his interpretation, he does two different things. So once he reads nouns, he interprets as verbs. And basically he says to Belshazzar, look, God has weighed you in the balances He's found you lacking, um, and he's going to judge you, and he will judge you by handing you over to the Medes and Persians, which actually happened that very night, the text says. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the uh, divine decree, I like to call it, and you correct me, please, if you disagree, but in the middle of chapter 6, establish a statue, enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the laws of Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Help our listeners understand a little bit about this background, because this is a big deal. Yeah. Part of what chapter 6, the lion's den story, is doing is it's giving a contrast between this law of the human kings, um, this law of the Medes and the Persians, this law that Darius makes, and the law that Daniel follows, which is the law of his God. So you have the same word, the same concept show up a number of times in chapter six, and it's the law of Daniel's God. Yep. And then you have the law of the king. And the question in the chapter is which one is Daniel, you know, they want Daniel to disobey the law of the king. The only way they can get him to do that is to get him to disobey the law of his God, which he won't do. So I think the chapter is showing this contrast between some one law that's supposed to be unbreakable, immovable, right? It can't be changed. And yet, at the end of the day, 
Daniel is not destroyed by the lions, right? He's thrown in according to the law, but he's not actually destroyed. That the law proved worthless. Um, but the law of his God is the one that sustains him, the one that he will follow no matter what. So I think there's a contrast between those two things. And that's that's my point. It just seems like you know, over the top. We're going to make a law, and then we're going to no- mm-hmm. we're going to notarize it, and you can't change it. And if you change it, we're going right. to kill you. <laughs> it's like yeah. such an over the top, uh, yes. you know, which cannot be revoked. And to me, it always catches my attention. Going, this seems like you know we protest too much here. We're trying too hard. It's right. almost like a setup. Oh, okay. God's saying, let me show you how well that's going to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> you use all your human power you want, but there is no God. Yeah, right. but, but the God of Israel. So anyway. Well, and I think a large part of what's going on in these stories that take place in the king's court or wherever um, in exile, a large part of them is illustrating in a concrete way how the God of Israel is superior to the gods of Babylon. Right. So in chapter two, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he shows superior knowledge and wisdom. In chapter three, with the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar flat out asks, who's the God who can deliver you from my hand? You know, which God has the power to deliver you? Well, there you go. It's the God of Israel. Chapter six, we see how God's law is superior to the law of the Medes and Persians. Chapter seven, we get the superior king and an eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. All the other kingdoms are going to be destroyed. Um, So I think that's what's going on. A lot of what's going on in those stories is it's showing the superiority of the divine king over every human king and their gods. I'm always hesitant to make jumps and leaps, especially if I can't find commentators that come close or <laughs> you know, might suggest something. But when I read chapter 6, 14 and following, I hear Pilate in my head. As soon as yeah. the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed, his mind on delivering Daniel. I mean, it seems like, am I overreaching there? No, I don't think so. And I, I mean, I think you mentioned this in uh, your teaching on Daniel, the tomb. What does it talk about the lions? And it was sealed yep. so that nothing would be changed. I mean, you definitely have something that the gospel writer Matthew picks up in his story of the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection. Matthew's the one that talks about the tomb being sealed. Yeah, Matthew sealed. 27, yeah. Yeah, so I think part of what Matthew's trying to do, at least, is portray how Jesus is a greater Daniel, right? Daniel suffered for his faithfulness. He was condemned to death for his faithfulness, um, and yet he survived, right? Jesus is a greater Daniel. He's persecuted and suffers for his faithfulness, um, more so than Daniel. And of course, he actually dies, which Daniel did not. Um, so yeah, definitely, that I, I think it's there. I, I would it. agree with you. I love it. Well, and you know, of course, we get the pilot's wife and the stone, the seal. The image. There's so many images that just, it kind of, begs for a messianic tell. But anyway, let's go on then to Lions Den proper, because Darius is interesting here, and you've already you've already said this, but you got to love the guy. Verse 16, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver. I mean, what a statement. Mm-hmm. I mean, his reputation is so strong, who you constantly serve. We He knows enough of Daniel's story, and mm-hmm. yet he's got faith in that more so than his own law. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a question about what this law actually was and and how Darius wouldn't have known that Daniel might be guilty of breaking it, because he obviously knows uh, what Daniel's like and 
the God that he follows. And so why wouldn't he have known when he made this law that Daniel was going to be guilty of it, right? Um, John Walton from Wheaton has written an article, a pretty interesting article, a theory on what may have been going on with this law. But at the end of the day, Daniel actually says to Darius, my God saved me because I was innocent. So whatever fine print might have been there, Daniel claims not to have disobeyed the law, claims not to have violated it. So in your spare time, go find that article because it's actually quite an interesting read um, or read that. my commentary. I think I talk about it, too. So <laughs> my commentary. Might Again, be where were you before I preached Daniel? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's go on to some of the visions the visions of the four beasts in Chapter yeah. seven. So we, now we're in the dream and vision world. Uh, it's one thing to have handwriting on the wall. It's one thing to have some deliverance here and there. But now we're into some interesting stuff. The four great beasts, the lion, the wings of the eagle, the bear, so forth and so on. Uh, you've already intimated a little bit about the parallels and contrast to, to help us out a little more. Well, parallels to chapter two. So chapters two yes. and seven are surely related. But chapter seven then also sets the paradigm or the pattern for what's coming. So in chapter four, you have four beasts representing four kingdoms or all of world history, if you want to take it even farther. In chapter eight, you have a vision that only has two beasts. And then in chapter nine, there aren't any beasts in the vision. And then chapters 10 through 12 actually are one revelation all at once. So there's these four visions. I think what's going on, and this isn't unique to me, is that the first vision provides the, the big picture and then the other, the visions that follow kind of narrow the focus such that, so chapter seven, we see four kingdoms, perhaps even all of world history. Chapter eight, we are limited or narrowed down to two or three kingdoms. And then in chapter nine, we specifically hone in on the Jerusalem temple and the city of Jerusalem. Um, so it's this narrowed focus that the visions are sort of taking on. Um, but the thing I love about chapter seven, I think chapter seven is really the heart of the book and it's also the hinge of the book. So it holds the book together. Um, you mentioned in your teaching that the book of Daniel has these narrative stories in half the book, chapters one through six. And then, then it has these prophecies, this apocalyptic literature in chapters seven through 12. So two distinct genres. But the book also has two languages. So the first chapters in Hebrew, and then chapters 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. Hebrew right. Chapters 2 through 7 are this block of Aramaic, which is tied together. Like you cannot take this chiasm apart. It just is this right. perfect structure of stories. But chapter 7 really has more in common with what comes after it you know, with chapters 8 through 12. It's this apocalyptic genre. But it's written in Aramaic, so it reaches backwards. It holds the book together. It holds that Aramaic section to the apocalyptic section. You can't take the book apart. And I think the heart of it is this vision that it casts for a future hope, um, that this eternal king will one day have this. It's, he's been given the kingdom. And his saints will reign with him in this kingdom. They're going to suffer a lot. But the end, there's reward. So chapter 7 gives us that wonderful picture. Chapter 8 is really grim. Um, 
It's a, mm-hmm. a stingy comfort in chapter eight. Basically, like yeah, that. basically the comfort is, well, God's got a leash on evil. It won't last forever. <laughs> so that's about what you get. Right, right. Chapter nine, there's not a whole lot of comfort there either. Chapters 10 through 12, when you get to chapter 12, you have resurrection. So that, of course, is comfort. But Good news. Yeah, Adam, but yeah. you really need the promise and the hope of chapter 7 to make it through the rest of the visions. You need that long yeah. view of history. I presume you've done some homework on the referent Ancient of Days. Well, a little bit, but this is the only place in the Bible it appears. Um, it's it's actually a we, we love theme. it though. We love yeah, it. Yeah, I know we do. Well, it's it's a great title. Right. It, it's um, not necessarily unique in the ancient world to Israel. So, Ancient of Days has this imagery of an old, really eternal being on a throne, um, and that is going to be portrayed. A, in other belief systems of the ancient Near East. So Israel has a lot in common just in the way they envision or the metaphors and the analogies that they use to even get a handle on their God. So ancient of days, yeah, eternal, the eternal one, the one who's been around forever. One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. The predecessor verse to that, the ancient of days took his seat a little later on in chapter 7, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the high. You mentioned the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Messianic? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, you hedge a little there. Well, I'm always hesitant to go there first because see that's where i just go for it <laughs> yeah i know i know that's okay that's okay but i always no, i, I want to hear I'm, I'm just pulling I mean, your i always leg. want to make sure i read it like the old testament audience would have read it first and i'm not sure they would have immediately oh I, I don't think so either you know? but i think looking um, back do. on so it that, so i always want to sort of back up and no say, that's well, fair what would they have thought and so of when course. they hear one like a son of man that in hebrew and in aramaic just means this is a human figure. This right. is a human-like figure. And in this chapter specifically, that contrasts with the other figures that appeared in the vision, which were beasts. They're all these mutant, horrible beasts. And now we have one like a son of man. We have a human figure, and that's the one who receives the eternal kingdom. So this contrast, and actually I think it's reaching back to Genesis uh, when God created... No Adam and Eve to yep. rule and reign the earth. They were humans. They were the ones given dominion. Um, and so here we get this picture in Daniel where that will that's going to be restored, and that's the way it will be forever after we get these mutant beasts out of the way. Right? If memory serves, uh, I believe that's Jesus' preferred self-reference. Yes, it is. And I... Oh yeah, I don't have time for that. But oh, it's uh, wonderful. But it's wonderful. It, it is. It's... But I yeah, and and his audience heard what he meant. Yeah. Because that's that's what got the charge of blasphemy. Yeah. At his trial. Yeah. His use of that title. His use of that text. Yep. Um, that and the I am references more than likely uh, piled on. Right. So. Right. Okay, let's jump ahead then, and since you a uh, stingy comfort, was that what you said? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chapter eight is great. Let's, let's hard. end on a high note then. So, so Doc, tell us the end of time. Michael, the great prince, of course, I have an affection to that, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred 
since there was a nation until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So land the plane for us, Doc. Well, this is the really the only place in the Old Testament where we get a clear picture of resurrection. And it comes really at just the right time, right? So you have this these people who are oppressed. They're in exile. They're away from their land. They're living under Gentile kings. And Daniel's having these visions that, yes, there will be restoration, but the restoration that they had expected is just a partial restoration. And then it's followed by this even greater exile, if you will, this greater, longer period of suffering. But ultimately, the restoration is even better than what they had expected. And it, in, it entails resurrection. And so reward for the righteous and punishment for the oppressors. And that would have been a comfort to the original audience of Daniel. And I think it's a continuing comfort to us today. Two kind of points and questions. One, I just finished Joel, and then I want to jump ahead to this piece here about everlasting life and everlasting contempt. So the book of Joel, if I'm right on that, is really a book about you're going to go through judgment. There's no stopping it. But it's better to go through judgment having repented than not. And one of the things I continually stress for our little church is we've got to have a long view, guys, because no matter who's in the White House, who's going to be the next president, the next governor, whatever of your inclination of a world power, local power, whomever you discuss, uh, we're on a timeline and we don't see things from God's vantage. Life is hard. Life stinks. You talked about a lot of suffering. And to have a long view I often comment, you know, the, the book of Judges was, what, 310 to 400 and some years. And mm-hmm. you look at America, we're, what, during 30-some years. And and so we're, we're like, okay, uh, we think we're something. You know, Judaism endured, depending on old earth, young earth debate set aside, thousands of years mm-hmm. <laughs> of this. Well, thing. I mean, we can we can put Abraham at least back at about 2,000. So, so. so yeah, we're looking at thousands of years. That's mm-hmm. conservative, and I don't want to be evangelistic. But they saw kings and rise and fall, and arguably most of their time was pretty messed up. I mean, Judges, mm-hmm. the darkest chapters in some respects, the divided kingdom, civil war, um, and here we are thinking we're something shy of 250 years. So I, I just try to encourage our folks that this world is not our home. We're called to live faithfully, just as Daniel did. And yet, uh, we may not have a happily ever after in our time on the planet. No, we may not. And the, the book of Daniel, specifically the second half with its apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic literature is the language of oppressed people. It's people who are suffering, And I think part of the difficulty we in the West have with those chapters in Daniel is that for the most part, that's not us. We are not living with the kind of oppression and suffering that that audience did. But there are a lot of people in the world who are. And I guarantee they have no trouble reading the second half of Daniel because they they can see that the the small messiahs we settle for Mm. aren't anything. You know, they cannot succeed. They cannot win the ultimate battle. And that awaits a final day. And and we may not 
live to see it. We might be raised from the dead to see it. And we do ourselves and our people a disservice if we promise them that, you know, your life's going to get better. It, it might not. It just might not until we get there. Okay, I love this sentence. Apocalyptic literature is the language of suffering people. Is that what you said? Yeah, it's the language and literature of oppressed and suffering oppressed. people. Oppressed, wow. Yeah. That's interesting because you think back of all the, the prophetic literature, is there any context where it wasn't when they were in Jerusalem and things were hunky-dory? Um, well, the prophets themselves aren't necessarily speaking to oppressed people, but apocalyptic literature, so the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and there's a Parts of couple Ezekiel. chapters in Zechariah and Ezekiel, yeah, you're, you've got oppressed people. Interesting. And that's true. In the, in the times I've been abroad, we used to call them third world. Now we call them developing countries, although mm -hmm. I don't see much development. I mean, Africa being a dark continent, the Brits used to call it when they spent so many billions of pounds trying to evangelize. I find it so striking that the men and women of faith in villages in Nigeria or Lagos or Northern Plateau State, they are, have a more a firm foundation and joy mm -hmm. in life with none of the props. No social yeah. security, no health care, no benefits, no retirement, no pension, no lake house, no trips. Most of them have never left their country, and yet their faith, and I don't mean this literally, but puts us to shame, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. in the sense that they have a joy and anticipation because they have suffered and they have mm -hmm. been oppressed far more than the American dream. Okay, land a plane for us, Dr. Witter. Give me two or three takeaways, applications. I know that's a big jump. Yeah, I think the book of Daniel is meant to encourage God's people. It allows us to see who our God is as we live in really in exile. We're living in a world system that does not have the values of God's kingdom. So we are citizens in exile, but we are also citizens of an eternal kingdom and we see the sovereignty and the power and the greatness and the goodness of our God in exile. And it also shows us how God's people can live faithfully no matter what exile turns out to be like. We can be faithful to our God. We might suffer, but he's a God worth suffering for. Michael Leasley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Chad Cates.